Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Catherine Rowland, a journalist and the author of The Pleasure Gap, American Women and the Unfinished Sexual Revolution. That's what we're going to be talking to her about today. Catherine is the former publisher and executive director of Guernica magazine. She is currently a contributing editor at The Guardian, the host of Seeking Soul, a podcast forthcoming from Sony, and is writing a biography of our old friend, Anais Nin, forthcoming from Crown. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Catherine. Thanks so much, Richard. It's great to be here with you. I'm really excited to be talking to you about your book, The Pleasure Gap. It's a great book with an amazing amount of material in it. Let's jump right in. Talk to us about the orgasm gap. The orgasm gap describes the differential rate at which men and women achieve sexual satisfaction during their interactions. And a lot of research suggests that in your run-of-the-mill sexual heterosexual encounter, a man will reach orgasm about three times as frequently as his female partner. This starts to narrow when you change up the sexual dynamic and when you look at who is participating in these sexual encounters. So when you look at um, women with women, for instance, the orgasm gap tends to go away. Or if you look at women and if you look at men who are in a longer term partnership with women, these numbers also start to look a little less um, unsettling. And particularly when you start incorporating other sexual acts and you move away from this kind of redundant, not particularly enticing heteronormative penetrative script and you include other things like fondling or oral pleasure or manual stim stimulation or different forms of kissing, you start seeing women begin to attain pleasure at a much higher rate. Um, but in, in your average situation where two people, a man and woman, pick each other up at a bar, for instance, and go home, what you tend to see at the outcome of that um, night together is this big rift and who's who's waking up happy the next day. Give us some numbers in terms of percentage of men who achieve orgasm, achieve, as a, <laughs> that's an interesting word to use with regard to sexual activity, achieve orgasm. Men also, by the way, as you know, achieve uh, erections. It's an achievement. Uh, and then they have a performance. Uh, so tell us some numbers about males and females, heterosexual, achieving orgasm, and then uh, uh, lesbian women achieving orgasm, please. Sure. And, and to your point, Richard, I agree that achieve is um, a really strange word that we've normalized in this context. But um, 
again, going back to this normative that doesn't really exist, but what the numbers, what the research indicates is that in a heterosexual situation, men, quote unquote, achieve orgasm um, between 90 and 96 percent of the time, often. Um, the lower numbers indicate like 85 percent, but most of the research suggests that this hovers more around 90 percent, whereas only about 65 percent of women are reaching orgasm. Um, in a lesbian partnership, these numbers start moving up considerably, and you see um, women reaching orgasm um, more like 70 to 80 percent of the time. So it's a real significant increase. So what do what do gay women know that that heterosexual couples don't know? I, I think many things, but the the overwhelming <laughs> issue on the table, I think, is that sex looks very different. You're dealing with a different set of assumptions about what pleasure should look and feel like, and about um, ideas of parity and who it is that's supposed to attain pleasure in an encounter. Um, sex between two women often lasts much longer. It's not focused on penetration as the ultimate expression of an erotic encounter. It's much more wide ranging. It can be more curious, which is not to say that lesbian sex can't also fall into the same ruts that uh, beset heterosexual couples. Um, but I think what you're proceeding from from the outset is sex. It's something that's really different than man mounts woman, penetrates her a few times, groans, and then the act is done, which leads, I think, you know, both partners pretty unhappy, but at least the man can check a box saying he's, quote unquote, achieved an orgasm from that encounter. Well, what you just described about the man mounting the woman, uh, jumping around, uh, having an uh, orgasm ejaculation and, and, and leaving and leaving the woman, it sounds exactly like the animals in my little farm. Uh, mm -hmm. You're describing what my dogs do, what my cats do and what the chickens do. The chickens are the fastest, by the way. So it, it, you're describing very animal behavior without a sense of empathy or care for the other person. It's almost like sex is some form of relief mechanism. I think you could certainly say that, though, interestingly, when you look at other primate species, you have um, females who are highly sexually expressive and will go around trying to satisfy that itch or um, activate that release mechanism in your terms by moving through a suite of male partners. But what I think you're seeing between humans is a diminishment of the very real possibility, perhaps a, a gift to ourselves of, as humans, that we have this very rich erotic potential that is being really squashed down and reduced to what are often transactional encounters that really don't yield any lasting satisfaction for anyone. Let's take a look at this from a political perspective. We have the income gap where two people, male and female, from the exact with the exact same uh, merits, the exact same skills, the female makes significantly less money. 
here we have a situation where two people with the exact same plumbing and the males have much more satisfaction. Almost, I mean, the, the two graphs look very similar when you look at them on paper. So what, what, what's being said politically here? Are, are, we, are you saying, or does the research indicate that men have, have suppressed women's orgasms for thousands of years now, have put them, subjugated them to a position where the men sort of get off, as you put it, have their pleasure, and the women are just uh, uh, a percentage down as they are with their income. I love that we're framing this as a political issue because that feels very important. And I think that the idea of women's perceived and experienced social value tracks very, in a sexual situation tracks very closely with what we're seeing in terms of women's economic standing. But I think we need to complicate this question when we're looking back at a historical trajectory um, beyond the idea that men are suppressing women's orgasms. I know that's been argued by researchers before, but when you look historically, the situation becomes a little bit more nuanced. In fact, if you go back just a few hundred years, um, and I'm speaking now in a, in a Euro-Western context, women's orgasm was often seen as a necessary component of reproduction. So if men had to achieve a certain level of heat in order to release their seed, women too were believed to uh, need to experience orgasm in order to be receptive to that seed and in order to um, become pregnant. This was so strong um, in the medical understanding that it shows up in early court documents where upon if a woman was um, raped, for instance, that was seen as the outcome of a pleasurable encounter and therefore it could not be persecuted as a rape if it resulted in pregnancy. So I think I think the the pathway there, well, yes, there is a long standing and sort of immutable uh, subjugation of women through the ages, the way that that has played out in terms of sexual understanding has shifted considerably over time. And I think this, this shows up too, just if you look at 20th century American politics, there was a moment in the 60s and 70s, I think until the rise of the religious right in the 80s and 90s, where women's orgasm, the orgasm gap probably looked very different than the way it does today. Orgasm is an act and an expression of intense human pleasure. Talk to us about how pleasure itself, the umbrella, got such a bad rap in our culture. Mm. Yes. Why did pleasure become something that we became wary of as opposed to celebrating? I have a, I have a couple of ideas here. Um, one returns to this idea of social control. I think when people are in ownership of their pleasure, they're able to exert more authority and decision-making power um, in a way that doesn't necessarily hew with current social conventions. 
Um, if, for instance, a woman felt fully empowered in saying, I relish my body and the pleasure it's able to give me, would she be content in a loveless marriage that's filled with drudgery? I would, I would argue no. But I think the larger reasons why pleasure has um, gotten such a bad rap have to do with, with politics and um, with the, the rise of a lot of more extremist religious values in our culture today which have filtered into the ways in which we educate young people about what is good and normal and healthy with bodies. Um, the way we have taken pleasure outside of a, we've removed it from a healthy public health dialogue and turned it into a vice um, to, the, to the detriment of everyone. Yes, pleasure is, is considered a vice. And I can't help but think when I hear words such as vice around pleasure, that religion is what is creating these these terrible misconstructions and this hypocrisy. It, I'm, you know, it's it's regrettable. It's I'm not comfortable, you know, attacking or taking on religion, but it seems to be the bold-faced truth that the Islamic and Judeo-Christian traditions have undermined. Uh, the place of human pleasure in our lives, you know, and given all the atrocities that are going on in the world and the fear that's being spread in the world, and now even the, the possibility of nuclear war being spread in the world, it seems so sad that one of the big positives, if not the big positive, namely pleasure, we're putting into a to a garbage heap and calling ourselves bad, bad. Yes, that we condemn rather than educate around our body's essential function um, and undermine what pleasure can in fact give us um, is just remarkable. I mean, I would hate to speak in blanket terms around. Islamic or Judeo-Christian faiths, but I think what I would feel more comfortable speaking to is um, sort of political developments that particularly happened in the U.S. starting in the late 70s, early 1980s, and really continue apace today, which have um, stripped, tended to strip women and women's bodies of their autonomy, increased women's social and political vulnerability, and presented sex as something that we should flinch in the face of, and we should greet with shame, and should only take place in a particular highly um, restricted container, um, and that it should um, proceed along certain sanctioned lines um, is really alarming. Um, and I think that kind of stringency and that sort of surveillance is, and it, it's hard to tease that apart from the other larger, incredibly disturbing developments taking place in the world today, wherein our very humanity appears so disposable and dispensable. I want to read something from your book at this time. Um, among first time hookups, the orgasm gap reflected the national average. 
the men had three on the average for every one of the women. Three to one. However, the likelihood of orgasm among the women did increase over repeat encounters. However, moreover, when sexual interactions entailed more than penetration, the women's orgasms increased dramatically. Now, this is very interesting to me because you and I both know Helen McConnell's work. And part of what's fascinating, of all the fascinating things about Helen's work, is that she brought it to us in the 19, in 1998. So we'd already been on the moon for 30 years. We already have electric cars. We have penicillin. We have all kinds of technology. And for the first time in history, a, a, an, an anatomist, actually an Australian urologist, diagrams the full female clitoris. This, this is almost science fiction. It really is. 1998 is the first time that somebody really diagrams the clitoris. And then I read that in 1985, Gray's Anatomy, the number one anatomy book on the planet, completely ignored the clitoris. It wasn't even mentioned in the clitoris. I mean, these are political acts. These are not accidents. These are these have to be. And so, but here's where I'm going with this. McConnell, bless her heart, teaches us that the clitoris isn't just a little button sticking out from a hood at the top of a woman's vulva. And 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 furthermore, it isn't a wishbone with just two little stalks going down the side from that button. It actually goes all the way down into the vagina and creates the vaginal wall. And she then documents how in development, the material that makes the penis stays together and makes a, a member. And the material then divides to make the clitoris. So you've got the same material making the clitoris and the, and the penis, and but but the but the clitoris, as you know well, goes down deep into the vagina and makes a circle around. It's the whole vaginal material. And and actually, one of the wonderful, funny things about all this is it turns out that the clitoris is much longer than the penis. You know, with all the emphasis on big penis and little tiny clitoris and Freud. You know, the clitoris is a little penis. Well, the clitoris isn't a little penis. It's a big penis. If you will, no, that's not right. I retract that. But it's it's a it's a it's a, a big organ in and of itself. Okay, what do you make of all this? You... It's it's really mind blowing, isn't it? One that has arrived so late in time. I mean, by this point, Congress has already unanimously approved that Viagra should be covered with insurance and available to every eligible man in the country. And we still, you know, it was still two years until we publicly realized that this little nubbin was in fact this vast structure that really probably accounts for all of women's um, vaginal pleasure. 
I think that the history there is so fascinating because you start seeing the clitoris flicker in and out of focus for hundreds of years preceding Helen's phenomenal research. I mean, it was documented by early anatomists who really varied in their interpretation of what this was. To some, it was this miraculous flower, the seed of pleasure, the sort of perfume of women's um, feminine expression, but then others reviled it as like the devil incarnate and this horrible seed that led men astray like sailors uh, and to sirens. Um, but what's so remarkable to me in more recent history is that despite this discovery, the clitoris remains largely absent from education. It remains neglected in medical textbooks. You have volume upon volume elaborating the anatomy of the penis and how to preserve it and fortify it and to create compounds to strengthen its two methods and, you know, sexual power. And there is such scant literature on the clitoris. Where are the equivalent tomes that tell us what this organ is? Um, even terming it an organ and not sort of shrugging it off as this accident of evolution or even the accidental discovery of naughty fingers traversing one's own body, which I think is how it still continues to be perceived popularly. Um, I think it just speaks so loudly toward to our continued denigration of women's um, physicality and sexuality. It is that, isn't it, sadly, Catherine? It's denigration of women's sexuality and pleasure. I'm going to read something else from your book. Anthropologists have observed that in cultures that expect women to enjoy sex as much as men do, women have regular orgasms. Whereas cultures that question the propriety of female pleasure are home to greater orgasmic difficulties. Talk to us about that sentence, please. I'll, I'll add to that the caveat that a lot of the research around this area can be um, a little baggy, I think less firm than one would like it to be just because it's so hard to get at. Um, what do we mean by pleasure? What do we mean by orgasm? And who are you actually talking to? Um, but I think what you see overwhelmingly is that in cultures that don't question that this is, that don't view women's pleasure as an aberrant phenomenon or something that is attained with one's mistress or outside of sanctioned, loving, socially constituted relationships, um, what women both internalize and how their, in this instance, male partners engage is in a way that is supportive of that sexual expression. And you're able to be more curious about one's body. That curiosity isn't accompanied with damnation or criticism. Um, and it's it's nurtured where it, an inter the expectation of sexual interplay exists. It changes the entire terrain of intimate interactions. But on the flip side, if the idea is that women's pleasure is dirty or it's secondary to male pleasure 
or the assumption is that you know women's bodies are hard to operate and their desire occupies tenuous ground and we assume that women are naturally less sexual creatures than men then their pleasure isn't going to feature prominently in during sexual interactions you quote a researcher named Baumeister who talks about erotic erotic plasticity and when we talk about cognitive plasticity we talk about the brain being able to bring in new material and change itself and actually uh grow grow intelligence what what he appears to be pointing out is that women are even more susceptible than men to the story the pr that comes from the culture the peer pressure so that when they're with a tribe where it's expected they'll have more fun they do and when they're in a place that it's suppressive and repressive they get suppressed and repressed in other words women are are, are he say are more sensitive beings to what the culture is is uh is pressing on them is that correct that is correct so that women's desire and pleasurable are is far more vulnerable to shifting social context and um social mores so, i think that yeah, oh pardon ahead. me please no please go uh, ahead i think a number of questions um continue as to why that might be the case and is that sort of built into women's physiology or is that also a learned state um because of the dissecutable way in which um women are punished for deviating from social expectation um or the dissecutable way um in which women have to perform certain duties for the home and for the community in a way that leaves little room for their um pursuit of sexual pleasure um and i think that more research to that end is warranted i want i want you to talk to us about this researcher carol vance who says that women's impulses are being poisoned that their desire is being poisoned and that it's a, 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 a creates self-doubt and anxiety and and she even she goes on i mean she's very strong that she says that that pleasure for men is giving men their due whereas for women it's an accidental aside Carol's work i think does a great job at pointing out that for women pleasure and danger are often hideously commingled so that women can often come to associate their very desires as something that is going to incur um bodily or social harm and so you start policing yourself from the get go because you anticipate that should you express who you fully are sexually you're going to be castigated in some way or or worse you quote another scientist named Proz who says that she has been accused by the National Institute of Health 
of being an immoral person because she wanted to study sexuality. Nicole's research is amazing. Um, and she was a researcher at UCLA. She was running a prestigious lab there. And she wanted to ask very sensible questions around how orgasm and pleasure contribute to health. And she had one study where she wanted to look at orgasm as a mediating, um, as having a mediating effect on depression. And her um, university review board came back and said, hey, the depression study is great as long as you remove the orgasm component. Um, you know, in another instance, she wanted to look at whether orgasm could facilitate better sleep. And likewise, she was blocked from asking these very sensible questions. She explained to me that sometimes the spouses of her, of, of men that she wanted to conduct research with, were getting squeamish at the idea that they would be undertaking research just on sexual subjects at all. And yeah, when her research made its way for national funding, reviewers reviewers termed it as, as immoral and, and not worthy of public funding. And so again, it returns to this question of what does this say about the worth of women and why we're so willing to segregate um, women's health from women's sexuality. Why is why is women's sexuality not seen as an essential component of their overall health and well-being? And instead, it becomes this dirty, um, untouchable domain. And that should give all of us pause. I mean, there's no reason why um, research into orgasm, which is a natural bodily function, which is the outcome of healthy sexuality and healthy sexual interactions, should be considered immoral. We should know as much as we possibly can about it. Kraft Ebbing was the leading sex researcher in the 19th century. Some consider him the first sex researcher. He was ostracized took a tremendous amount of abuse. Albert Kinsey was arguably the greatest sex researcher of the 20th century. You're aware of what happened to him. His career was ruined. The Rockefeller Foundation took away money. He ended up a, literally a broken man, a great researcher, the founder of the Kinsey Institute at the University of Indiana, with, with offsprings in various parts of the United States and the world. Uh, but he, as I said, he died a broken man. And now you, Catherine, are bringing us this information about this particular researcher and perhaps others who are taking heat for doing sexual research. I know at least one other person that I've interviewed recently Dr. Oli Ogas of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who wrote a very interesting book called A Billion Wicked Thoughts. Uh, Oli is a, he's a computational psychologist 
You, are you familiar with the book? Yeah. It okay, used so AI it, to identify um, people's search patterns, right? He, he, exactly. So he literally identified a billion different pieces of data on what people are looking at at pornography. But of equal importance is the heat he took for doing the research. You know, this is a prominent guy at a prominent university in, in, in the year 2022, and he's taking heat. I know it. So right. this is, it's, I, ha, I don't even know how to put words onto, on, on, onto what a, a serious, painful, sad position we've gotten ourselves into with massive hypocrisy, massive hypocrisy. Well, let's move on. Let's move on to um, a little bit from you about the absence of real sex education in this country. It's just glaring. And it is an issue that has become worse and worse over the past several decades and where you start seeing a real chasm in the quality and content of education um, between what you might expect to receive in a coastal city and what you might expect to receive in Texas or mid-country. Um, and a large part of that is has to it owes in part, at least, to the textbook industry, so much of which is coming out of Texas, which is really laying the standard for what we are receiving in classrooms. But again, it's an instance where we are approaching science and we are regurgitating it back as smut. Um, we are stripping the scientific integrity of information, depriving children of um, knowledge that they should have every right to um, and giving them horror stories or simply presenting sex as something that either results in reproduction or some form of um, disease or pathology. In the meantime, I think issues of the orgasm gap are reified in early education because we see um, Men's pleasure is discussed. Men um, experience ejaculation. They experience normalized orgasm, but there is no mention of women's pleasure or their entitlement to pleasure or how that might remotely be achieved um, during the course of sex. I'm going to wrap up this little section of our interview with a quote from your book. And this is a quote from the American Psychological Association, the largest uh, group of psychologists uh, on the planet and the most important psychological you know, a, a group in the United States. That you're talking about the consequences of the cultural attitudes towards women. And they say, the consequences are ghastly. They include body dissatisfaction, eating disorders, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, a range of physical health problems, and even impaired and fragmented consciousness. The American Psychological Association authors state that taken together, 
These decrements suggest that the sexualization practices in the United States may function to keep girls, quote, in their place, unquote, as objects of sexual attraction and beauty, significantly limiting their free thinking and movement in the world. That is a very powerful statement and a very powerful quote. Limiting their free thinking and their movement in the world. Well, okay, let's move on. Let's talk about what you call the politics of faking it. Tell us about the politics of faking it, what, some of what you found, what the women are telling you. So we all know what faking it is. It's when a woman is in bed with a man and instead of actually experiencing any kind of pleasure, she feigns sort of arias of delight um, in order to bring the experience to a close. And I have to admit, Richard, that when I began this research, my exposure to faking it had always been in the context of, of humor, be it appropriate humor or not. But it's so often made, made fun of. And it's often the man who is presented as this um, humiliated party that the woman hoodwinked him somehow and faked it. And he didn't realize that that happened. So poor guy that he is subject to this um, misleading transaction. And as I started talking to women, I talked to more and more, faking it became an almost ubiquitous feature of their sexual experiences. Um, and the research certainly points this out as well. But, and I think you know, the surveys here aren't great. A lot of them have been conducted by mass media outlets. Um, but those indicate that you'll, you might have to back me up in the actual statistics here, but a significant number of women are faking it all the time, if not, or half the time. But anyway, as I had these conversations, I realized that this wasn't a jokey matter. At issue was that women are really the injured party here that they feel the expectation to perform for their male partner is so strong that even when they are in pain or discomfort or not sexually engaged at all, they feel like they have to show up and perform pleasure for their partner's behalf. And some of the interviews I conducted, this played out to such an extreme that women were in acute physical pain and rather than feeling empowered to say, hey, I need you to stop, I'm uncomfortable, they still followed through with this pressure to act out this performance of delight. And that to me was, was horrifying and suggested that we really need to reframe our conversation around what faking it actually is and both equip women with the ability to dictate the course of their sexual interactions like, much more clearly um, and and also diminish perhaps the expectation that women are going to have orgasms that follow the track of their male partners. 
talk to us about how faking it relates to what you call caretaking. What I mean by that is that women are oftentimes, I would even use the word groomed here. I don't think that's too strong, um, but really brought up with the idea that they need to minister to the sexual, emotional needs of their male partners. And this might show up in a variety of domestic um, ways, but also in terms of tending to their male partner's sexual satisfaction. And I think it falls under the larger canopy of emotional labor that women are taking on. But not only do they need to assure their partner's experience, orgasm, and pleasure, but they also need to sustain the illusion that their partners have performed in such a way that they too have experienced pleasure. And what an enormous caretaking burden that is to take on. Enormous burden. You, you say that 70 to 80% of women, uh, middle-class women, are deprived of orgasm because of the excessive speed of the husband's reactions, namely the husband's orgasm and, and concomitant uh, ejaculation. Now, everything I've read over the last half century, if you will, or more, seems to agree that the average male in the United States has an orgasm during sexual activity in something under five minutes. Does that meet with the research that you've done, that kind of number? It's not an encouraging number, certainly. <laughs> I, I think that um, the quote you, you shared um, aligns with what early researchers like Kinsey found, was that, you know, the part of why you have these floundering marriages and unhappy couples is because the men aren't lasting long enough to just bring women into a state of excitement um, and for them to get going enough to really enjoy what their bodies have to offer them. Uh, but yes, certainly. And I think that as expectations around who deserves pleasure who should expect pleasure when that continues along this these disequitable lines? That kind of jackrabbity response is allowed to persist. Yes, it, and it's connected to what we said before about both the lack of education and the perspective on the sexuality of whose pleasure is this for? Because obviously. If we teach men that, hey, guys, here's the situation. You come in four to six minutes and the woman is just like left hanging because they turned out to be genetically built to require 10 or 20 minutes. So we got a little problem with nature here. We got to do something about it. So what you guys got to do is after you come in like a jackrabbit, you got to hang in there a little while longer and do oral and do other kinds of things with your fingers and make love with your whole body, not just with your penis, right? We need some education there because right. I think part of what this is summing up to is that a lot of male sexuality 
is about putting their penis in somewhere and finishing and being done. It's not about, quote, making love. Right. And I think it's really important in this conversation to emphasize that men, too, are really missing out. They're missing out from not only the full range of sexual possibility of their female partners, but of their own range. If they think that all they're capable of is four minutes of penetration resulting in a humdrum orgasm, um, that's limiting what they're capable of to a pretty um, devastating degree. Let's, let's move on to something even more even more difficult and that is rape statistics in the United States I mean, it's breathtaking I mean, you point out here on page 52 of your book that roughly 36 times in every hour of the 24 hours of the day a woman is raped in the United. I mean, Catherine. I guess I'm a, you know, I'm a pretty softy. I, I read that, I start to cry. I can feel tears welling up. That's, I mean, that I live in a country and in a world where 36 times every hour a woman is being raped, and 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 we're not creating, we're not calling this an epidemic. This is an epidemic. 350,000, 315,000 rapes a year is a massive epidemic. If you had 315,000 people getting almost anything, you'd call it an epidemic. Exactly. And why, why? is this metabolized as the status quo and as a acceptable state of affairs? Why is this why are we not out in the streets demanding to see this as the crisis that it is? I, I think I'm a bit of a softy too, Richard. I felt in the course of my interviews almost ill-equipped to meet with this devastating reality being articulated over and over again, almost as ubiquitously as, as faking it. Women either having direct experiences with some form of sexual or physical trauma or a very um, near um, exposure to it. And then, you know, I'm scratching my head. You know, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I got, I've got my head, my my psych head on it. Well, it's always on, but <laughs> and I'm thinking, how does this happen politically that we're not calling this an epidemic? How does this happen that every little burg in the United States isn't calling attention to it? And then I read in your book that it wasn't until 1993 that marital rape was considered illegal. So what you're telling us and informing the public is prior to that, a man could rape his wife. I mean, so certainly it had been illegal in most states by then, but that it lingered on the books at all should give yes. us grave pause. Lingering on the books is way of saying that certain kind of rape is okay. There's no like red line. Rape is not okay. It's saying if you marry a woman, you can rape her. Okay, we've gotten through that, but that was only, you know, 27, 20, less than 30 years ago. Wow. Right. Wow. I don't know what else to say. Maybe we go on to, maybe we better go on to something easier to deal with. 
boring sex. Talk to, <laughs> talk to us about boring sex. Boring sex, I think, is, is crushingly common, um, in part because, again, what people expect to see in sex doesn't look particularly interesting, experimental, and moreover, not attuned to what people actually want. I think the corollary to boring sex is then when you talk to people about their actual sexual imaginations, they're far more wide ranging. They often flirt with elements that can be taboo, that really run up against the power dynamics that contour the relationships they're in in the real world. Um, and that somehow that is all abandoned when you actually come together with someone else. And so boring sex, is, it's such a crushing phenomenon in that it plods alongside this rich realm of imagination that so many people quietly harbor and yet don't feel empowered to express. How but, how is how is boring sex related to your concept of dead bedrooms? Well, dead bedrooms is this pretty odious uh, term that has been applied to a lot of longer term relationships where all sex, all activity, all interest, all heat has steadily extinguished to the point where relationships are almost sexless and partners have, have really drifted so far apart. Um, I think sexless marriage is now understood as couples who come together less than 10 times per year. Um, but a lot, I would argue that part of why that happens is that sex has become so unsatisfying. And when this is commonly explained, the women is frequently positioned as being at fault, and indeed why I started this research to begin with, was investigating this concept of female sexual dysfunction um, and this idea that somehow women's desire had grown pathologically low and it, it should be treated. And what I came to argue um, and came to believe over the course of my work was that a low libido and a resulting disinterest in sex was oftentimes a very healthy response to sex that was boring, unfulfilling, unchanging, and not oriented towards the woman's pleasure. The, um, the DSM stands for a Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Now, this is the book that psychologists and psychiatrists all over the United States, if not the world, use for uh, diagnoses. So the diagnostic uh, label is in the book, and then the description of what the behavior is that uh, comes along with that particular diagnosis. And you bring to our attention that the DSM uh, has a category called inhibited sexual desire. So in and of itself, if you're 
if you make it into the DSM, you're in a pathological condition because the DSM is a description and a categorizing of pathology. This isn't a health book. This is a pathology book. And so inhibited sexual desire is now officially considered pathological. Please talk to us about ISD, inhibited sexual desire. This is a pretty recent addition to the DSM in the scheme of things. You didn't start seeing these labels crop up until the early 1980s. Um, and I would argue that two funny things are, are going on here. One is that there's an expectation that women should have sexual desire, which is kind of new and I think really following on the tales of the sexual revolution and the women's movement of the decades prior, but that there's something wrong with the woman that her sexual desire doesn't look the way that it should. And so at that point, we need to stop and ask ourselves, well, what do we mean by should? What is the entity that we're really pathologizing here? And what what is it that we are expecting of a normal and healthy sexual response? And then I think from that point, we've had almost three decades now of this raging storm of trying to determine what is healthy desire, how do we qualify, let alone quantify something as elusive, subjective, vulnerable to the changing tides and seasons as desire. And then from that point, um, how do we treat that? Is, there, is that something that can be approached in a standardized manner in a way that does not pathologize, again, a woman's healthy response to her circumstances? The other piece that we see at work here is that so much of that dialogue around inhibited sexual response or female sexual interest and or arousal disorder, which I believe is the current um, diagnostic term, is that uh, those labels are really divorced from the social context in which a woman is expressing that low desire. So even though this um, pretty pathetic parade of treatments that are being steadily pushed out into the consumer marketplace right now present addressing female desire as an empowering act of reclaiming your health, it's still not addressing the underlying concerns, which are that women feel vulnerable, society remains not sexually educated, lives are endangered, and you come home and women are still tasked with having a professional career while also doing all that caretaking work um, in their relationships or their families if they have them. And that ultimately is really sapping their desire. The most obvious cause of all the things we're talking about, which are definitely going to be inhibiting a woman's sexual desire, these sexual mores, putting them down for pleasure, you know, keeping them under control, uh, men coming fast, all these different reasons. There's also the fact that according to Julie Holland, who lives across the, the, the water from you in Manhattan, uh, tells us 
26 million women in the United States are on antidepressant drugs. Tell us about antidepressant drugs and sexual desire. It feels like a bit of a, a chicken and the egg situation. I mean, part of why we started really investigating low sexual desire was in response to the uptick in women taking antidepressant drugs. But I think if we turn back to our friend, Nicole Prouse, we would ask, would you need antidepressant drugs if you were having better sex? Um, not that I think it's that clear cut, but we certainly are living in a over-medicated moment in society where it's not just the 26 million women on antidepressant drugs, it's the battery of other pharma that's piled on top of that. Um, and we continue to, I think with antidepressants too, you could say we're, we're just treating one symptom literally with a pill and not looking at the larger universe of concerns that are taking place. And women's sexuality, since we render it secondary socially, is um, seen as a perfectly acceptable um, sacrifice in the name of ministering to mental health needs. Yes, and also... The obvious connection that antidepressants are sensation numbers. I remember one of the first articles that came out in the New York Times many years ago about Prozac, where the guy says, Oh, what a wonderful feeling. I'm feeling better. You know, I don't seem to care about things anymore. But I did take note that at my mother's funeral, I wasn't able to cry. <laughs> well, how is this going to affect your sexuality? And, you know, if we're ignoring the woman's seat of pleasure, the clitoris, we're slut shaming her when she has a real sexual appetite. We're calling men studs when they have the exact same thing. We're doing all these cultural things and we're telling the scientists that if they research these women, they're immoral. It's amazing women have any sexual appetite whatsoever. I mean, it would like, be, you know, you could get to a place of, oh, shit, why bother with all this? It's too much trouble. You know, but, wow. But that, that calls our attention to just how powerful female sexual drive is, that it's still able to overcome, you know, this tremendous baggage, the shaming and the pathologization and the danger and the threat and all of that, and yet still women are expressing incredible appetite. Point well taken, extremely astute point, underline it in red. Now, people ask themselves of all ages, you know, what's a normal amount of sex? You know, what's okay, right? You talk about it in terms of frequency of sex developmentally with different ages. Tell us about that, about the relationship between age and sexual desire. I think that so much of this conversation still tends to overemphasize sexual frequency in place of sexual quality. And we are so hung up on how much sex should I be having? How much sex is normal? Am I healthy? Um, and this weird numbers game that we're constantly playing so as to figure out where we're positioned on what is probably already a pretty fictive bell curve. Um, but so I, 
I, I pause a bit and, and trotting out numbers here just because I, I don't know how healthy they are because conditions change so much. But what I think we tend to see is you have gathering sexual energy in your youth that continues to play out with greater sexual frequency in your 20s and early 30s. But in your 30s and 40s, um, especially if you tend to be drifting into the latter years of a longer term um, monogamous partnership, those numbers start to fall off. And then by your 50s and 60s, you might see sex happening um, once a week, once every other week, um, beginning to, to peter out a bit more. And should we be concerned about that? If, say, you only have sex, 12 times a year, but when you have sex, it is spectacular, uh, transcendent sex that puts you into communion with the mysteries of your soul and the universe. We should celebrate that and and not term that as, as too little sex. Um, I think no matter where you are, and if you're having constant sex, but it's that sledgehammer three minutes that results in kind of relational despair, we shouldn't be applauding that either. Well, call me greedy, but if I have the kind of sex you're talking about that's so spectacular and it's it's once a month, I'd like to switch to once a week or once a day. I mean, that sounds pretty good. However, however, I will read something else from your book. And it says, if bedroom life revolves around a modest preamble leading up to penile penetration, women may become increasingly uninterested in intimacy because so far it's routinely left them underwhelmed, if not sad, angry, or frustrated. Another very powerful statement. How can we expect anybody to want to do something and reignite themselves when they're being left underwhelmed, sad, angry, or frustrated. And, and you're, you're saying that's happening quite a bit. That's not a tiny number. It's not a tiny number. I think that is the norm rather than the deviation. Um, and, and yet that certainly does not have to be the case. We can we can have sex that is that sort of of the resplendent variety um, that we'd want to have every day or at least every week. Okay, now now we've got to get to the now we've got to get to the home run. We've got a a bad situation. It's clear from you and other authors and researchers. We've got. We've got bad attitudes about sex. We've got morality interfering with our pleasure. We've got a situation where men are wired to get done with sex quickly. We have women being put down for all kinds of reasons. Come hell or high water, it's coming at them, whether it's name calling, societal rejection, boring sex in the bedroom, all these reasons. We've, we've taken, perhaps as we're doing with our, with our planet, we've taken something beautiful 
and we've undermined it. What do we do in the bedroom now, Catherine? What should women do? What should men do? How do, how do we turn this around? How do we make some, some lemonade out of these lemons? That's, that's the question. And I'm so glad you mentioned this allegory to the discard with which we treat the earth. I think just the way that we storm the planet and trash this miraculous vehicle that we're all on really shows up in our lack of empathy and compassion and total disdain for fellow humans. Um, I think that the be this is obviously going to require a much larger cultural shift, but I think it fundamentally begins with women beginning to learn their own bodies and to listen to their own bodies and to figure out what their pleasure feels like, to become deeply familiar with it, and to just become like truly fluent in, in themselves. Because pleasure, I think that we so often mistake pleasure as something that we derive from our partners, but ultimately it emanates from ourselves. And women becoming versed in that and how to achieve that on their own and feel strong and empowered in the face of that, I think it's going to be the very first step. How we achieve that, how we give women um, a sense that they have the entitlement to know their own bodies in all their raging ways, I think goes back to the conversation we were having about education, that that is, needs to be um, such a, a big component of early learning and then revisited over the course of the lifespan. I don't think you simply learn about anatomy in a scientific, non-shaming way and move on from there. It needs to be a conversation that we continually revisit, much as we should be continually revisiting consent throughout the lifespan. But we start with women's bodies and we ensure that all members of society are exposed to, to that in the same way that's grounded in science and human rights. Women are going to read this interview. They're going to listen to this interview. And some of them are going to say, okay, that's great. But what should I do tonight? You should what should touch they yourself. Do? They, they should touch themselves. Okay. Now that's right in line with other researchers that I have interviewed on this program who have said that uh, emphasized the importance of mutual, of masturbation and of learning how to pleasure oneself. Sort of what the byline is, if you don't know how to make yourself feel good, how can you possibly tell the other person how to make yourself feel good? So that's good. Touch yourself. What else? What 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 else might women do with regard to the guy if they're heterosexual? What what might they do? And one of the things you 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 say in your book is just do it. Just do what does just do it mean? I don't know how to relate quite to just do it. 
I didn't necessarily relate to just do it either. That was a bit of advice that many women were receiving from therapists and they balked in the face of just do it. But where I think where that comes in handy is this idea that once you get in the boat and start paddling, you might, you might actually go somewhere overcoming that initial inertia around sex. If you are open to the possibility that the sex might look and feel differently from the same old sex that hasn't been giving you much, then you might be able to actually experience something. I took issue with the just do it philosophy. And that I think first, and this is a taller order, but we need to trash that old narrative about the sex that we've been having. If you have been having that boring old penetrative sex, just do it is going to lead you into an encounter where you're going to expect boring old penetrative sex and you're not going to derive any pleasure from it. But if you do something to thoroughly destroy those assumptions about sex, say you share a fantasy or for some of the women I spoke to, it was taking really bold steps like stepping outside of their marriages and either having affairs or opening up their partnerships and being with new partners or even totally suspending normative sex and saying, you know what, for tonight or for this week or for this month, you're not going to orgasm. This is going to be just about me. And maybe I'll orgasm or not, but I need to know that all of the focus is on me and we are both going to relearn what is possible in this dynamic and what can actually transpire in this place. 2,500 years ago, pre-Christianity, there were some great Chinese books written instructing men on how to withhold orgasm and explaining to them how important it was, both how it built up their charge and their excitement eroticized their daily life and gave their women a great deal more pleasure. And I think we need to come back to that old, those old Chinese customs. The just do it is a, is a tall order to be asking women, uh, given everything that we're talking about. On a very personal level, and if you don't want to answer, you're welcome not to answer. How is writing, researching a vast amount of research I want to underline that you did for the, how many years did it take you to write this book? About five. Five years. Wow. How did this five years of research, interviewing, all the work you did and all you learned, how did it affect your personal sex life? It's, it's not a straightforward answer, Richard. I, I thought it was going to really throw open the doors of my own sexual potential. And I think on a personal level, one of the questions I was investigating is just how good can it get? Is there a ceiling? Is transcendent sex available to everyone? What are, I wanted to push the boundaries of what was possible. I'm, I'm married and I've been in a long-term monogamous partnership for some time. And I wanted to look within that container to see just how much I could explode that. Uh, and in the course of researching this book, 
I became a mother twice over and that really altered my sexuality. Um, and I lost my brother. And so in the course of, and my father. And so, uh, while I was researching pleasure, it was also this deep dive into grief, but where I came out of it, I think was a more nuanced and for me more, um, productive understanding of pleasure, that pleasure isn't just the pursuit of tremendous, good, uh, wonderful feeling. It's the richness of feeling in general, and it's being open to feeling the full spectrum of human emotion and to having your body and being, um, be able to 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 surrender to that in a in a big way, and I think that pleasure, in all of its tones, origin like really emanates from that openness, that receptiveness um, to the to the fullness of our lives. Another personal question: We had to reschedule your interview several weeks ago because there was a shooting in your area, and you wanted to get to school and get your kids to safety. How are your kids doing and how did they react to that threat of knowing that their mother had to come and get them because there was a shooter out there somewhere? How, what effect is, have you seen, if any, on them psychologically? I, I feel the greater burden is just the escalating uh, rates of crime that we're seeing across the country and in place urban areas like my home in Brooklyn in particular, where violent crime is becoming more common, it's feeling closer to home, and it's necessitating more frank, discomforting, and regular conversations with, with young children. My, I have three kids, but the two kids this concerned are ages four and seven. Um, and it's having to find a language to communicate this larger moment of social crisis and, and distress in a way that doesn't tip off um, their own anxieties as we're coming out of this incredibly anxiety-ridden moment in human history. So it's a, I wish I could say something uh, more definitive, but I suppose it's just continuing to do the delicate dance of parenting where you want to present the world as a place you want to inhabit and yet gently signal attention to the parts of the world that we still desperately need to change. Is there anything, coming back to your book, The Pleasure Gap, is there anything more you'd like to share with us before we conclude? Take your time. Thanks. I think just going back to this point that beautiful sex is available and that we don't have to content ourselves with this sad status quo and that it's not a matter of altering one's biology or working your way through some perceived pathology or indeed deep-seated inhibition. It's learning to tap into gifts that you already possess. And 
I really approached this book as a journalist with a, my background is in public health. And so I tended to embrace um, a more scientific mindset for much of this text. And yet, as I heard more stories of beautiful transcendent sex, it was hard to resist the pull of what felt mysterious and indeed sacred. Um, and I arrived at a place at the end where I thought, well, we really need to include discussion about that sacredness in a way that doesn't make people flinch because we live at a time where we don't want to hear words like soul and sacred because it sounds too woo-woo or maybe it's undergirded with religious ideas that make people all kinds of uncomfortable. But finding a way to signal that beauty, to incorporate that beauty, feels truly fundamental towards um, restoring our sex to the marvelousness that it can really be. Thank you. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Richard. Catherine Rowland, The Pleasure Gap, American Women and the Unfinished Sexual Revolution. You want to read this book, you want to make this book part of your library. Bye-bye.